there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the early 1900s, a foray family in a remote Papua New Guinea village were put in a terrible circumstance. They were forced to watch their mother die. It began when the usually cheerful woman started pacing the room and snapping at her children for playing outdoors. She wanted them inside, safe with her. The world couldn't be trusted. But even when everyone was in the house, she barely looked at them. She was withdrawn in her own little world. She wouldn't respond to her worried sons or daughters when they asked if she was okay. On occasion, if she did speak, her words blended into each other almost unintelligibly. And on quiet nights, she'd awaken her whole household with her chilling bouts of involuntary laughter. Within a couple of weeks, her hands jolted and spasmed at her sides. Her son jumped back at each tremor. He asked his neighbors, the medicine men, and the elders what was wrong with her. They didn't know. No one had ever seen a person's body betray them like this. A sorcerer must have cursed her with an entirely new evil spell. The family couldn't save her. Soon she forgot their names. Even if she had remembered, she wouldn't be able to identify them on sight. She'd gone blind. The woman's health continued to decline until she fell into a coma and died. After the funeral, her family and the rest of the tribe were plagued with terror. They'd never seen a condition like this before. They were terrified that it might strike again. And a few months or years later, it did, again and again. The woman's baffling, isolated illness became an epidemic that threatened to destroy the foray people. And the only way to battle the laughing death was to change their entire way of life. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second and final episode on Kuru, also known as the Laughing Death. 
It was given the name after headlines sensationalized how victims burst into spontaneous laughter during their dying days. Last week, we introduced the Foray people and learned of the Kuru epidemic wiping out their tribe. We also met the researchers and doctors, including Dr. Daniel Carlton Gaidishek, who came to their land and tracked the history of the disease, searching for an explanation. This week, we'll explore Gaidushek's continued research into how Kuru was spread from person to person. We'll also investigate the elusive infectious agent that made Kuru so difficult to classify. Beginning around the early 1900s, Kuru killed hundreds of women and children in the Papua New Guinea Foray tribe. Its victims lost muscle control and tremored violently. In advanced cases, brain damage led to involuntary laughter. Within a year, each patient eventually slipped into a coma and died of starvation or other complications. No one knew the cause of the disease, but doctors and researchers had their theories. In the 1960s, two anthropologists, Robert Glass and Shirley Lindenbaum, came up with the most controversial. The laughing death was caused by the foray eating the recently deceased. The research showed many correlations between the disease and the tribe's traditional mortuary cannibalism. It infected mostly women and children, the ones who carried out the ritual. The practice had begun in the early 1900s, around the same time the first cases of Kuru appeared. To Glass and Lindenbaum, it all added up, but they didn't have any proof. The husband and wife team left Papua New Guinea to continue their research in Melbourne, Australia, in 1962. They started discussing their theory informally with scientists at conferences. Some were intrigued by the idea. But Dr. Carlton Geidushek, the leading name in Kuru research, brushed it off. The laughing death was a neurological disease. Thus, he reasoned you had to come in contact with a contaminated brain to be infected. Or, if the anthropologist's theory was correct, eat one, which the foray swore to Geidushek that they'd never done. They consumed muscles, Organs other than the gallbladder, marrow, even contents of the deceased's digestive tract, but not the brains. Also, by the time Glass and Lindenbaum had arrived in the villages, the tribe had largely stopped eating their dead. In the early 1960s, the Australian government had suppressed the foray's mortuary cannibalism, thinking it too barbaric. But even though the practice was over, Kuru wasn't. It still passed from victim to victim, like any other virus, bacteria, or parasite. While doctors failed to come up with any explanation for the epidemic, the foray were taking matters into their own hands. Kuru had killed so many foray women and children that the foray people were on the brink of extinction. A 1962 sample of 125 foray men showed that 63 were widowers and 10 had never married because of the dwindling population of women. The foray came up with radical plans to save themselves. One was to leave all of the women and children in the village and temporarily ship the men elsewhere. While they were gone, 
Karu could wipe out everybody left behind. Then the men would come back and rebuild their homes, presumably marrying women from other tribes. Another variant of this idea was for the men to kill and eat all of the Kuru-infected women. Then the government could ship all of the men to a new land where they could start fresh. Any sorcerers among them had to swear to not start cursing people there, too. Both plans were extreme. Villagers could either let their loved ones die, kill the infected, or wait until they were infected themselves. They were getting desperate. They needed a cure. In the early 1960s, recent graduate and medical officer for the Australian administration, Michael Alpers, thought he was just the person to offer help. When he heard of Kuru, he was inspired to do health in a different kind of way, by building meaningful personal relationships with the suffering foray. There was a community in trouble, and he wanted to help. And when he arrived in a village called Wesa, Papua New Guinea, he was welcomed with open arms. The villagers built a hut for him and his family to live in. Alpers chose Wesa because it had the highest concentration of Kuru cases. From there, he'd be able to track patients from diagnosis to death. He set up a clinic and trained members of the foray to be his assistants. When they first came face-to-face with modern imaging technologies, they thought the X-rays could reveal Kuru bundles in sorcerers' hands. They also believed that the instruments to inspect their eyes would reveal their hidden motivations and secrets. But as they learned the ins and outs of Western medicine, they became invaluable to Alpers. They became his translators, cultural advisors, and data collectors. With their help, the clinic became well-known, and people from villages miles away came to receive treatment. Alpers was well-liked in the community, not only because he was helping them, but because he truly seemed to care about the foray. He didn't arrive in the village and start examining them like animals in the zoo, like so many other Australian officials had. He got to know his patients' families and broke bread with them. He was soon regarded as a citizen of Wesa and a friend to many. As personable as Alpers was, he wasn't sure if he could get along with the foray's other prominent medical researcher, Dr. Carlton Gaiduschek. Before he'd left Adelaide, Alpers had been warned by others that the doctor was a dangerous man. Gaiduschek was ambitious, more concerned with fame and glory than advancing the medical field. He might see Alpers' parallel research as a threat and try to drive him out of New Guinea. But when they met in 1962, the pair immediately hit it off. They bonded over their love of literature, and Gaidushek quickly shared some of his findings on Kuru. That same year, Alpers joined Gaidushek's research team. Over the course of their collaboration, they came across a letter by veterinary pathologist William Hadlow. Addressed to the editor of the medical journal, The Lancet, Hadlow had noticed that Kuru was very similar to a disease called scrapie. According to the United States Department of Agriculture, scrapie is a degenerative disease affecting the central nervous system of sheep and goats. 
Symptoms typically manifest two to five years after young lambs or kids are infected. The infected ungulates experience locomotor incoordination as well as head and neck tremors. Once symptoms appeared, the animal died within one to six months. Scrapie was a transmissible disease, but it wasn't known how exactly it was spread. According to the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, transmissible diseases are caused by biological agents in a human or animal host. These conditions can be transmitted from one patient to another through physical contact, contaminated foods or beverages, body fluids, inhalation, or insect bites. Well-known transmissible diseases include HIV and malaria. Some similar diseases, like Ebola and tuberculosis, can even be spread after the original host has died because the virus still lives on in their bodily fluids. One may come in contact with the infectious agent while, for example, performing an autopsy. Given so many possible means of transmission, it's no wonder researchers in the 1960s were so baffled by the spread of scrapie and the laughing death. Hadlow's letter to The Lancet detailed the similarities between Kuru's symptoms and the neurological degeneration present in scrapie. When Geideshek and Albers read it, they were inspired to test if Kuru was transmissible via bodily fluids, just like Scrapey was known to be. If they could determine that it was transmissible, they'd be able to narrow the study to try to figure out how it was being transmitted between patients, and from there, hopefully prevent it. Researchers had unsuccessfully attempted this in the past by injecting Kuru-infected tissue cultures into rats and other small animals. It had never worked. But Gaidushek and Alpers thought the original studies just hadn't been thorough enough. They planned to inject chimpanzees with Kuru to see if they developed the disease. Because Scrapie had a long incubation period, only appearing in sheep three to four years after infection, it was possible that Kuru could have a lengthy gestation as well. They theorized that it could take up to 10 years for it to show up in their chimpanzee test subjects. To get started, they needed a Kuru sample. That meant they needed to find an infected brain. And therein lay Gaidushek's and Alper's first obstacle. Although they were living among the foray in Papua New Guinea, they were still subject to the Australian government and needed permission to use any human tissues. And authorities weren't inclined to cooperate even in the face of a devastating illness. Coming up, Gaidushak and Alper's test to see if Kuru is transmissible. Now, back to the story. In the early 1960s, a young medical researcher named Michael Alpers came to Papua New Guinea to study Kuru. It was eradicating the Foray people, and he wanted to help the tribe that had welcomed him so warmly. After joining Dr. Carlton Gaidushek's research team, he found a similar condition in sheep that implied Kuru was a transmissible disease. But in order to use this information to prevent Kuru, they'd have to prove their theory correct. Albers asked the local Australian field officer if they can do an autopsy of a Kuru victim's brain for their tests. 
The official outright refused, claiming that the Fori were tired of modern medicine poking and prodding their sick people. However, Alpers challenged the officer. Autopsies and cutting up dead bodies obviously wouldn't be viewed as disrespectful by the previously cannibalistic foray. They were only frustrated when their loved one's bodies weren't promptly returned afterward. In the end, the officer allowed Albers to perform dissections only so long as the family said it was okay. Once Albers would hear about a Karu case, he would try to get the family's permission to inspect the victim's brain after their death. If he was successful, he moved into the patient's village and waited for Karu to take its toll. While he performed five autopsies in total, one of the most notable and heartbreaking was that of 11-year-old Kigia. Alpers had gotten to know her and her family during his time in the village observing other patients. Kigia's playful and cheery personality had always been a glimmer of positivity in a tribe overrun by disease. But then, one day in February 1962, Kigia's limbs and head throbbed in pain. Everybody knew what was happening to the poor girl. Soon, the tremors began, and by August, her personality had changed. Alpers noted that Kigia was now thin, quiet, and frightened. She knew that her death was imminent. Two months later, Kigia was slurring her speech and couldn't physically support herself. Someone needed to hold her up just so she could walk a few steps. She entered a terminal stage in March, which lasted a grueling six weeks. She was unable to move or speak, but was aware of her surroundings. Every time Alpers walked into the room, she would make eye contact and, as he described in his work, show a flicker of recognition. According to Alpers, when Kigia drew closer to death, her father left. He'd already lost her mother to Karu and couldn't bear to see it happen again to his daughter. Kigia's remaining family called Alpers when she eventually succumbed to the disease. He arrived quickly and grieved with them for the charming young girl. Alpers then did what he'd done with all the others. He had a family member hold Kigia's head while he used a bone handsaw to get to her brain. Inside, he found her cranial tissue was oddly damaged, dotted with holes like Swiss cheese. He cut out small cubes of brain matter and put them in a bucket full of chemicals and cotton wool so they wouldn't lose their shape. Then he put the top of the skull back on, sewed her back up, and said goodbye. Kigia's death was particularly rough on Alpers, but he found some solace in her family's generosity. They nobly donated her brain, hoping it would help save others. It was another reason that Alpers had to solve Kuru. People were counting on him. With renewed vigor, he gathered his tissue samples. Every victim's brain, like Kigia's, was full of holes. After each autopsy, the brain samples were sent in an insulated box to Leh, Papua New Guinea, then to Melbourne, Australia, then to the National Institutes of Health's primate facility near Washington, D.C. In early 1964, the brain tissue from Kigia and a boy named Ayu were injected into a pair of chimps named Daisy and Georgette. 
If Alper's hypothesis was correct, then Daisy and Georgette would eventually contract Koru. Alpers traveled to Washington to visit the chimps twice a week. He grew attached to the primates, enjoying their individual personality quirks. He said in interviews that chimps are so close to humans, it made them difficult to use in lots of ways, but we felt we had to do it. While he waited out the lengthy incubation process, Alpers pursued other research separate from the transmission study. He examined the foray census records and all of the medical reports in Geidersheck's clinical files. The notes ranged from 1957 to 1963, six years of extensive Kuru history. Poring over the records, he noticed a turning point in 1960. Older tribal members who were born before that year were still developing Kuru, but almost no children born after 1960 had come down with the disease. This all suggested that if Kuru really was transmissible, something had changed around 1960 so that newborns were protected from the condition. Older children and adults had possibly been exposed before that key year, but their symptoms had shown up later after a lengthy incubation period. The late 50s and early 60s had been a period of transformation for the foray. Australian officials had come into their land, building roads, giving them modern medicine, stopping child marriage and wars. It would be impossible to figure out just one thing that had changed during the time period. Except that was also when the Australians had put an end to the tribe's mortuary cannibalism. Maybe Lindenbaum and Glass were right after all. It all clicked together for Alpers. Kuru's prevalence in women and children, the historical timeline, all roads pointed to cannibalism. For this theory to work, he needed to prove that Kuru was transmissible. If it wasn't, then eating a Kuru-infected body would pose no risk of later Kuru infection. But it could be another 10 years before the chimpanzees would show any symptoms. Or so Alpers and Geidersheck thought. In 1966, just two years into the experiment, the study's subjects, Daisy and Georgette, began to noticeably struggle to pick up an apple. As hard as the chimpanzees tried, their coordination was off. They had to bend down and use their lips to scoop food into their mouths. Day by day, their balance and fine motor skills worsened. Tremors rattled their heads and hands. The researchers were amazed by their swift deterioration. According to Alpers, Daisy was falling all over the place. It was awful. But at the same time, there was this elation that our experiment was going to be successful. Geideshek told his colleagues to keep their results a secret. He wanted to be thorough, exacting, eliminate any chance they'd made even a wildly unlikely mistake, say, somehow mixing up their brain tissues and giving the chimps scrapey instead of kuru. The only way to confirm that the condition was truly the laughing death was to examine the chimps' brains after they died. Which wouldn't be long. Georgette's deterioration worsened, and after several months, the team decided it would be humane to put her down. 
They then autopsied her brain and sent it to London for a neurological examination. The London lab results showed that Georgette's samples were indistinguishable from Kuru. The doctors and researchers reportedly wrote their paper in a single day. It was published two weeks later in the medical journal Nature. They'd officially proven that Kuru was transmissible. From there, they could establish stronger protection measures. However, the doctors still didn't know two important things. What exactly was the infectious agent that transmitted between Kuru patients? And how had it first infected the foray? Now that they knew it was contagious, Geidershek and Alpers each had their own theories. Alpers still believed it was cannibalism. There was some infectious agent in a dead person's brain that was eaten by the tribe. Once consumed, the virus would take over. But Gaidushek insisted that the foray didn't actually eat the brain. He'd questioned several foray men who'd sworn up and down that they never consumed cranial tissue. That left him exploring other avenues of transmission. Gaidushek's central hypothesis had to do with the foray's mortuary practices, but not the act of cannibalism directly. They'd often handled the brain while they prepared to cook the rest of the body. The virus in the tissue could have infected them through small cuts on their hands. They also allegedly rubbed brain matter on their skin as part of their rituals. This could have infected them as well. That would make Kuru transferable through touch or bodily fluids, like many other contagious diseases. But if that were so, there should have been cases of adult men or children born after 1960 getting Kuru from the infected. Alpers offered another conjecture. He pointed out that many mothers showed signs of Kuru while they were pregnant, giving birth, or breastfeeding. If the conditions spread conventionally, then babies born to mothers with the disease could also have caught it through vertical transmission. Vertical transmission occurs when a mother passes viral cells and the overall infection to her child either before, during, or soon after birth. There are a couple of ways this happens. One involves the mother's placenta, which provides nutrients to the baby. During pregnancy, a virus can pass through the placental wall and into the fetus's body. It could also be transmitted via the mother's bodily fluids that come in contact with the baby during labor and childbirth. And after birth, exposure could come through breast milk. The risks of vertical transmission can be reduced thanks to modern medicine. For example, in mothers with untreated HIV, anywhere from 15 to 45 percent of children will be infected during labor, birth, or breastfeeding. If an expectant mother is given antiviral drugs during pregnancy, the chance of HIV being transferred to the baby drops to 2%. However, there was no antiviral drug for the laughing death. Even without one, many healthy children were born to Kuru-infected mothers, seemingly invalidating the vertical transmission hypothesis. In fact, most of Gaidushek's and Alper's theories of infection were proven to be false. Kuru didn't follow the known rules of how infections operated. It seemed to have its own. 
maybe the researchers could figure them out by exploring other diseases similar to Kuru. They turned their attention to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or CJD. Discovered in the 1920s, CJD is a degenerative neurological disorder that was originally thought to be non-transmissible. CJD typically presents itself in a patient who is about 60 years old. Over the course of a few months, their balance and coordination begins to fail, making it difficult to walk. Dizziness and double vision make it even harder to get around. The patient slurs their words as their body goes numb. They soon develop muscle spasms, blindness, and loss of voluntary movement. Control over their bodies starts to slip. They become bedridden, unable to speak or sometimes breathe. Inevitably, within a year, they usually develop pneumonia or respiratory failure and pass away. The similarities between Kuru and CJD were as impossible to ignore as the Scrapey similarities had been earlier. In 1968, Geideschek and Alpers performed the same experiment for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease as they had with Kuru. They injected CJD brain tissues into chimpanzees. Eighteen months later, the chimps developed CJD symptoms, proving for the first time that this disease, too, was transmissible. Now all Geideschek and Alpers needed to do was determine what was being transmitted. From there, they'd be able to investigate a potential treatment or even a cure. But they'd soon find these efforts stymied because the scientific community had never seen an infectious agent like Kuru before. Coming up, a shocking discovery redefines everything scientists understand about infectious disease. Now, back to the story. In 1966, Dr. Carlton Geideschek and Michael Alpers confirmed that Kuru could be passed from victim to victim. While the two still debated on what the exact mode of transmission was, Alpers was adamant that it was cannibalism. And after proving that another disease, CJD, was transmissible as well, he had a new theory on how the laughing death had all begun. Alpers theorized that sometime in the 1900s, someone in the foray must have developed CJD. 85% of CJD cases are labeled as sporadic, meaning that the patient has no prior risk of infection. Their parents didn't have the condition, nor did they come into contact with it. It just showed up for no clear reason. Since Kuru and CJD symptoms are so similar, this patient might have even been one of the first supposed laughing death cases that the tribe reported to researchers Lindenbaum and Glass. When this hypothetical first patient eventually died from the disease, their body was fed to the women and children in a mortuary cannibalism ritual. CJD's unknown infectious agent spread to them in this way. Either immediately or over the course of a few generations, the pathogen mutated into Kuru. Thus, the epidemic was born. Viral mutation is a common and well-documented phenomenon. It begins when someone gets over a virus, and then their cells develop a resistance to prevent further infection. 
In response, the virus adapts and changes its genetic makeup to fight against the host cell's resistance. It's an act of survival of the fittest. As the infection evolves, it can become a whole new strain of disease. This happens more often than you might think. On April 26, 2009, the United States government declared swine flu a public health emergency of international concern. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that up to 575,400 people died worldwide during one year. As its name suggests, swine flu was formerly only present in pigs. However, in the years leading up to the pandemic, its gene structure mutated enough for it to be transmissible to humans. It's entirely possible that a similar mutation could have led to Kuru. However, Alper's idea was merely hypothetical, as the first patients were obviously no longer around to examine. All he could do was theorize based on his and Gaidushek's research. Their work showed that Kuru and CJD didn't trigger any antibody response in the brain. Typically, when a virus enters a body, the immune system creates antibodies that attack the invading cells. These stay in the system so that if the virus comes back, the host is protected. But this kind of immune reaction wasn't present in Kuru patients. It didn't act like a typical germ on the biological level, but the fact that it was transmissible indicated that it was indeed caused by an infectious agent. It could have been a virus, bacteria, or a parasite. Whatever pathogen was at play, it was certainly nothing medicine had ever seen before. Gaidashek was stumped. But on the upside, he was the first to observe the agent in action. The ambitious doctor seized the chance to name the newly discovered germs, calling them slow, unconventional viruses. This identification would soon give Gaidashek something he'd always wanted. Since he'd been a child, he dreamed of being a great mind in medicine, and in 1976, he was recognized as one. That year, he earned the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his discovery of slow, unconventional viruses and their transmission. Gaidushek didn't share the prize with Alpers or his team, nor did he publicly acknowledge his early research blind spots. In his acceptance speech, he stated, we believe that contamination during the cannibalistic ritual was the sole source of transmission of Kuru from man to man. When he finally accepted the cannibalism theory is unclear. At some point, he must have realized a lot of his cultural research had been false. For example, he'd originally believed Kuru was spread when the foray rubbed their bodies with brain tissue during their rituals. But later, the tribe denied that they did any such thing. He'd also argued that the foray never ate the brain in mortuary cannibalism. However, Gaidashek had only asked the men, the ones who didn't participate in cannibalism. The women who prepared and ate the bodies were never consulted. And they later confirmed that they most certainly ate the brains. Gaidashek never admitted that he'd been wrong. When asked, he made it seem like he'd never had any doubt about transmission via consumption of the dead. In interviews, he claimed that 
from the very start of his Kuru research, even the completely drunk would come to the conclusion that a disease endemic among cannibals must be spread through eating corpses. With a Nobel Prize winner touting the theory, cannibalism became the accepted mode of transmission for Kuru. However, the term slow unconventional viruses only classified the disease. It still didn't specify what agent was being transmitted. That discovery was left to someone else, much to Gaidashek's contempt. It wouldn't have been found if it weren't for one sick woman in the 1970s. She walked into the office of Dr. Stanley B. Prusner, who had just begun his residency in the neurology department at the University of California, San Francisco. He was immediately fascinated by the woman's ailments. She couldn't maintain her balance. Her memory was rapidly declining. All of her symptoms pointed towards CJD. When Prusner looked into the disease, he discovered Gaidashek's research. The concept of slow, unconventional viruses intrigued Dr. Prusner. When he dug deeper and read about Kuru, he felt he needed to find the infectious agent responsible for this newly identified type of ailment. So he went back to the disease that had triggered Gaidashek's discovery, Scrapie. Prusner examined the brain tissue of infected animals to try to identify this virus's nucleic acid. Nucleic acid is a category of molecules that store genetic information telling cells how to reproduce, what shape to take, and their function. The most notable member of the category is DNA, a.k.a. deoxyribonucleic acid. All viruses and bacteria, like us, contain either DNA or RNA encased within proteins. The acids tell the infection how to spread in the host's body. They're what the virus injects into healthy cells in order to spread. However, Prusner found something odd about scrapie cells. They didn't have nucleic acid at all. All he was able to find was protein. Test after test produced the same results. This implied that the scrapie cells, unlike other cells, didn't contain any DNA, RNA, or anything else that could propel reproduction and infection. However, these proteins obviously multiplied like any other living virus, causing diseases like CJD and Kuru. Prusner had discovered a new type of infectious protein. He called them prions and published his findings in 1982. Initially, the thought of the infectious agent without any DNA, the building block of life, was medical heresy. Virologists were furious as such a seemingly nonsensical idea gained attention. They believed that it was impossible for a protein without nucleic acid to reproduce, let alone cause a disease. As far as they understood biology, protein by itself shouldn't have been able to operate any of the main functions of life, like reproduction. Prusner never discredited his naysayers, but merely encouraged them to find what he couldn't. He wrote that, should such a nucleic acid be found, then the word prion would disappear. However, within the next couple of years, no one was able to find a nucleic acid in slow, unconventional viruses. The evidence for the existence of prions was piling up. Where virologists came up empty, 
Prusner found the specific protein that makes prions, simply named prion protein, or PRP, in 1983. While PRPs don't have nucleic acid that tells them to multiply, a specific gene in our DNA does, according to the Prion Alliance. Prions are essentially folded strands of protein without nucleic acid. Think of them like a computer without a hard drive or a car without a steering wheel. All the pieces are there, but nothing is telling it what to do. However, when they're exposed to our DNA, it's like hooking an external hard drive to the computer without one. It gets outside instructions. Prions can be found throughout the body, but they're mostly concentrated in the brain. Scientists don't fully understand what healthy prions do or what sort of instructions they receive from DNA. Everybody has prion proteins. But if we all have them, how do they become a horrible disease like Koru? The answer lies in cell mutation. The PRPs present in Karu and other slow, unconventional viruses begin as one abnormal, misshapen prion protein. That atypical PRP is able to bond to regular, healthy proteins and deform them as well. Like a virus converting healthy cells, the rogue molecule causes a chain reaction that disfigures more and more healthy PRPs. Soon, these irregular proteins clump together around the brain. They kill cerebral tissue, resulting in holes that give Kuru and other prion-diseased brains a sponge-like appearance. This damage leads to Kuru's notorious tremors, loss of motor skills, and spontaneous laughter. After decades of mystery, Stanley Prusner had found the infectious agent that led to Kuru. It wasn't a virus at all, but a rogue protein still known as a prion. The medical community eventually accepted the existence of prion infections as the wealth of evidence became undeniable. Prisoner won his own Nobel Prize in 1997 for the discovery. However, Guy Dushek never fully accepted Prisoner's contributions to Kuru research. The two often butted heads on terminology. Since viruses and prions had different chemical makeups, Prusner felt that calling prion diseases viruses was misguided. Gaidashek refused to use the word prion in lieu of his own unconventional virus. In the documentary, Kuru, the Science and the Sorcery, Gaidashek argued, Stan says it's not a virus, it's a prion. That's not a discovery, that's a word. Despite Gaidashek's objections, Kuru is now classified as a prion disease. The term slow unconventional virus is now considered outdated terminology. But while doctors squabbled over credit, people were still dying in the Papua New Guinea mountains. Although researchers had figured out how the disease worked, they didn't have a cure. Somebody needed to help the foray, and it might as well be someone who was a part of the family, like Michael Alpers. While Prusner and Gaidashek bickered over word choice, researcher Michael Alpers moved back to the Foray villages. He loved the Foray people and needed to track Kuru's progression and see if the epidemic would end or required further investigation. 
Luckily, after cannibalism was suppressed in the 1960s, Karoo cases diminished each decade. By the time Prusner won his Nobel Prize, there were only one or two diagnoses per year. From 2003 to 2008, there were only two Karoo-related deaths. Albers tracked the last case in 2009 when a 61-year-old woman died from the disease. One may wonder why Kuru was still appearing, albeit rarely, in the 21st century. After all, the foray had stopped eating their dead half a century before. It was because, like all prion diseases, Kuru can take years to manifest in a person's brain, even decades. The woman who died in 2009 was likely a child when she had a bite of infected flesh. Her and other elders' deaths suggest that Kuru could have an incubation period as long as 50 years. It's possible that latent Kuru prions will activate in another aging member of the foray sometime soon. It's a source of great unease and uncertainty. Even those who participated in ritual cannibalism have no way of knowing if they actually devoured infected bodies or if they're safe. The only way to be sure is when the earliest symptoms appear, and then it's already too late. Luckily, the younger members of the tribe have hope. Although Kuru has no cure, it can now be avoided. They can live out their natural lives free of the terrifying disease and the chilling laughter it provokes. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, Tap Browse and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Brandon Rizzuto with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 